So on March 13th of this year, the day that the US pretty much shut down for maintenance, everybody's favorite researcher, Brene Brown, posted a message on social media that simply said, church, exclamation point, 15 minute service, 6 p.m., Instagram Live. There's a picture of it here on your screen so you can see the little yellow sticky note that over a million people saw because she's Brene Brown. She added in her post, I miss church today. I'd like to be in communion with God, friends, and strangers this morning, learning, singing, and passing the peace. But as we all know, churches were closed that day and many remain closed still today, thanks to the pandemic. So with a heart begging for her church community, Brene Brown, who is not a pastor or a priest by calling, simply turned on her computer and offered a call to worship. It's a pretty unlikely, unconventional, unchurchy thing to do. But then again, church hasn't always been so churchy if you get my drift. Sacred spaces were sacred long before we claimed them by erecting walls and steeples and stained glass windows. In the book of Genesis, after Jacob masterminded an entire charade to earn his brother's birthright and take everything for himself, Jacob was on the run. He found himself walking late into the evening one night and exhausted, came into a clearing, swept himself a patch of earth to make a bed, pulled up a rock for a pillow and fell asleep. That night, he dreamed of a giant ladder with, that reached all the way to the heavens and God's angels were going up and down the ladder, up and down throughout the night. And then, no doubt to Jacob's amazement, God appeared there in front of him and promised to bless him and all his descendants. God offered a blessing over Jacob that would have humbled even the greatest among us. And God promised to keep and protect Jacob always. Which, if anything, just goes to show that God can and does work through all of us, even a swindler like Jacob. The next morning, Jacob awakes from this vision-filled sleep and considers all that transpired in the night, and he is truly in awe. There's a kind of reverence in his stance now, even, that wasn't there the night before. And he says, surely God was in this place, and I did not know it. And then Jacob immediately picks up the rock on which he had laid his head, tips it on its side to form an altar, and anoints it with oil. He called the place Bethel, house of God. In Exodus, we read about Moses, who, having escaped into the wilderness after killing a man, comes upon a most unusual sight, a burning bush. And as he moves to investigate it further, the voice of God calls out from the flaming bush and instructs him to remove the sandals from his feet because this is holy ground. He is now in the presence of God 
and the very ground itself is holy. For years, the Israelites carried the Spirit of God with them in a tent as they traveled through the wilderness. God was with them always. And when they stopped to make camp, they would set up the tent for God. Only Moses was allowed into that space with God. But God's sacred home was wherever the people wandered. And it was never the same place twice. And of course, we know that Jesus himself preached from the mountaintops, from boats and beaches, from seashores and riverbanks. And he talked about the body of Christ, not the buildings of the church. God's home has always been wherever God's people experience the divine presence. Years ago, my husband Tim and I were invited to go rafting with a friend who's a Catholic priest and some of his friends and family. We had just bought our own raft, and so we were thrilled to get to go for spend a few days on the river with experienced rafters who could show us and our kids the ropes, not to mention some of the sweet side trips and hikes and layover spots on the river. But my favorite memory of the trip is church. We woke up on a Sunday morning, and as the sunrise was just starting to heat up the Red Rock Canyon walls, we formed our camp chairs into a half circle on the banks of the Colorado River. Father Tom had on his best floppy sun hat, a pair of tevas, some swim trunks, and a t-shirt made ratty from years of wear and the muddy river water. I think you're looking at a picture of him now, and some of you will remember him if you've been around these parts for a while. Father Tom placed a stole over his shoulders, squared his back to the river, squinted into the sun with that impish smile, and proceeded to take us all to church. We sang, we read a little scripture, although I'm certain I couldn't say which one. We prayed, we blessed, broke, and shared the bread. Our closing prayer was one of silence with only the sound of the water as it drifted by our camp, our sacred grounds. Our recessional, we, for, the, for the recessional, we packed up our beach chairs and jumped into the cool waters on that scorching hot day. Church never felt so good and so not churchy. The well-known theologian Phyllis Tickle isn't that a great name, by the way? And she was always smiling. She always looked tickled. It suited her. Phyllis Tickle wrote a lot about church history and church future. And she's famous for having said that every 500 years, the church cleans out its attic and has a giant rummage sale. In her view, this enables the church to reevaluate and sometimes discard forms of faith that have accumulated in order to make room for new. Which is not to say, of course, that the previous forms are invalid, but rather that they yield their place as the dominant expression of Christianity of their day in order that something new can emerge. 
We are, as you well know, in many ways, reinventing church as we know it in real time. Sure, we've had some iterations over the past few decades. Vatican II comes to mind, mega churches, another, women pastors, praise and worship bands, but the church has by and large stayed the same for the past 500 years, ever since the Great Reformation, which ushered in all kinds of change, religious, social, political, educational, workplace, society. So I don't presume to prophesy here, but I'm pretty sure things are bound to change again if we haven't already started. So what will church in the 21st century look like after we've cleared the furniture and the dishes and packed up all the old photographs and pulled all the junk out of the attic? What is church anyway? Last week we talked about the real kingdom of heaven, a tangible kingdom, and we acknowledge that we have an opportunity in every single moment of every day of our lives to access that kingdom, which is peace and joy, and mercy, and forgiveness, and all the things that Jesus asks us to do as his followers. And so we said the kingdom is not only something to look forward to with joyful anticipation in the afterlife, but something to joyfully co-create with God right now on earth. In that way, we make the kingdom real, tangible. So this week, we're focusing on how to make church real tangible. And as with any discussion of the future of the church, I think we have to start with the way its people follow Jesus. Shane Claiborne, who is a writer, a theologian, and a minister in Philadelphia, wrote, to refer to the church as a building is to call people two-by-fours. Now, during the COVID quarantine and shutdown, Snowmass Chapel had a graphic on our website that said, the buildings are closed, but ministries are open. You saw that in many churches as we continued our church ministries during a time of need, but a time in which people couldn't gather. And the church's ministries will continue to stay open as long as there are people to serve and to love those on the margins, the oppressed, the grieving, people in need, a recent study showed that most 18 to 29-year-olds don't look for a church facility that caters to the whims of pop culture. They want a community that calls for deeper meaning. Well, they should be thrilled to know, so did Jesus. One thing we know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that the, ch the church that Jesus envisioned was one where people mattered more than anything else, more than political structures, more than tradition, more than families of origin. People mattered more than social niceties, more than rules, even more than the temple, which was built to honor God. When Jesus found out, as our scripture pointed out today, that John the Baptist had been murdered, he went away to be by himself. But word of his whereabouts got out. And soon, there were swarms of people coming to be near him, to see him, to just be close to him and hear him. 
Despite his own desire to be alone with his grief, the scripture says he was overcome with compassion for the people and he began to heal them and to teach. As that day wore on to evening, the disciples urged Jesus to send the people away so that they could go get some food. It was dinner time after all, and the people were surely hungry, they said. But Jesus simply turned to the disciples and said, you feed them. Now, at this point, I can imagine the disciples looking at each other like their master had sort of lost his mind, shrugging their shoulders and lifting their eyebrows as if to say, what are we supposed to do now? And then to everyone's amazement, of course, Jesus took five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 people. Matthew chapter 14 says, Jesus lifted his face to the heaven in prayer, blessed, broke, and gave the bread to the disciples, who then gave the food to the congregation, and they ate their fill. And then what was left over they gathered into 12 baskets full. Parts of that story sound an awful lot like church, don't they? Positively sacred. And every part of it sounds relevant and meaningful and with an emphasis toward letting people know they matter. That's how the body of Christ shows up in the world. That is real church. Jesus came to usher in a whole new way of religious life, but he did it with a reverence for the old, for the scriptures, for the foundations of their faith. If anything, he infused the religious practices of the day with a more back-to-basics approach. As we then begin to envision what the church looks like in 2021 and beyond, and listen, when the pandemic is over, I know we might go back to church exactly as it has been, at least for the last few decades, but I kind of hope not. I kind of hope that through this time of uncertainty, we will discover some new ways of being the church that are still steeped in our reverence for the old. Jesus taught meaning and relevance and practical application of ministry. He healed, he helped, he advocated, he was in relationship. He changed systems, he pointed out political oppression and greed and iniquity. He fed people when they were hungry. If we want a more meaningful, relevant church experience, it doesn't get much better than that. And if our beautiful and beloved buildings are going to sit largely empty for the foreseeable future, then churches would do well to start engaging in that, the real work of Jesus, or risk being called two-by-fours. Now, I am not suggesting that our church buildings don't matter. They do. They are where we come to baptize our new babies, to bury our dead, to grieve with the grieving, and to calm our darkest fears. Churches are where we bless marriages, and we commission ministers, and we send all the people out into the world to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God. 
It's where the line between fellowship and friendship is beautifully blurred. And it's where the art and the sanctity of things like grace and forgiveness are practiced again and again in its people. Church is where we look at our brothers and sisters and we declare peace be with them even when we have wronged one another. Church is where the gospel is proclaimed as a reminder that Christ came to bring good news. And it's where music soars on the rafters and settles in our souls. I have always been at home in church buildings, even as I recognize that church can happen in unlikely, unchurchy ways. So we'll hold on to the old as Jesus did with reverence and awe and with the great care that it deserves, even as we look to an uncertain future. And when we have a hard time even imagining that future, then perhaps it will help us to look back at Moses, at Jacob, at Jesus, at the early disciples. After all, before the basilicas of Rome or the cathedrals of Europe began to spring up, church was more about the blue dome of a sky than about the spired steeple of buildings. In the very early church, Christianity's first adherents called themselves followers of the way. And we know that as early as 100 AD, just 70 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, followers of the way met in each other's homes. There they sang, they prayed, they read scripture, they discussed a little or a lot, depending on how the wine flowed, and they shared a meal. There were likely children running around who were hushed as the candles were lit and the prayers began and a devotion for the divine guided their sacred liturgy. There was holy ground. And their liturgy, by the way, is largely the same one we follow today in churches all over the world. It looked something like this, a greeting, a scripture reading or psalm, a sermon, prayers of the people, passing of the peace, communion, and then a dismissal to go out and serve the world. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. 2,000 years we've been doing this. There's also evidence in early Christian writing, also around 100 AD, that after any meeting of the believers, which always involved a meal, the leftovers were gathered up by the deacons and taken to the orphans and the widows and those who could not be in attendance. Sounds a lot like what happened with Jesus in our scripture reading this morning. The kingdom of heaven is revealed to us every time we come back to that place within us where God resides. When we center our very being on Christ within, we receive in turn peace, wisdom, guidance, and our hearts are opened to be able to see the brokenness of the world in a new light and to offer ourselves to its service. 
when each person in a community of believers is then so Christ-centered that he or she can't help but greet the world with sleeves rolled up, ready to work, that's church. And through our work, we invite others in to the kingdom, primarily by demonstrating that people matter more to God than anything else. The church invites others into the kingdom by offering compassion, by helping to heal what's broken, by feeding them when they're hungry. We allow them to experience for themselves where God resides within them so they can come back to that place over and over again to reset, recenter, renew, remember. We invite others into the kingdom when we invite them to consider that their sacred spaces can be marked at dinner tables, at riverbanks, on mountaintops, just as easily as they are marked by marble altars and stained glass. Real kingdom, real church. Finally, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that one of the gifts of our faith is being present to the unknown and trusting in God to provide. Jacob didn't know where God would lead him after he pulled that rock pillow from under his head. Moses didn't know what would come of his curiosity about the flaming bush. The Israelites surely couldn't imagine what would unfold for them all those years in the desert. The disciples were in the dark as they trembled in the upper room after the crucifixion. All these wise believers knew was to be present to the mystery of now and to trust in its sacred worth and in God's guiding. Something important is happening here. Surely, God is in this too, and we did not know it. When it comes to living the real kingdom and the real church, these are the fundamentals of our faith. If we stay focused here, the answers to what the church is and what the church can be and what the church will be in the years ahead will come. Just like the answer came for the disciples that day on a grassy hillside when the multitudes of people needed to be fed, the answers always rise. Amen.